0: Okay, everybody, if you could be seated, please. All right, thank you. Welcome back. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, now, this topic has been mentioned by a couple of people throughout the day, so expecting lots of engagement and lots of conversation um, uh, amongst the panel and also from the floor. I'm just going to start with a, a few stats to set the scene. Um, a Credit Suisse report showed that in the US from 1996 to 2016, the number of listed companies fell by half, from 7,300 to 3,600. And according to the CFA Institute, IPO activity peaked in the US in 1996 with nearly 700 IPOs, and that went down to barely 100 in 2017. That did come up again last year with um, about 190 IPOs, but you get the kind of general gist, in terms of, of the um, the changing nature of, of listings. Um, I've got some other stats that I'll hold on to later about um, private companies. But um, let's start with that kind of listed conversation. And, and Simon, you guys have a fairly large allocation to actually, sorry, let, let me step back a bit and introduce my panel for you. I'm sorry about that. Um, so to my immediate left, Marcus Simpson, head of uh, global private equity for QIC. Uh, Robert Cordero, Head of Growth Assets for First State Super, then Simon Hudson, Head of Equities at Unisuper, and on the end, Bill Dwyer, who's a Senior Consultant in Global Equities at Jana. So please welcome the panel. <laughs> so as I was saying, Simon, you have a fairly large allocation to listed equities. That's something that Unisuper's um, uh, very good at and very, very proud of. I think your balance fund... According to your website, it has 38% in Aussie equities and and 22% in global equities, which is certainly a lot bigger than than First State's allocation in its balanced fund. So, can you tell us a little bit about how you've observed this evolution of, of listed markets and and in terms of private for longer and and what you think that means for your outlook for listed markets in particular?
1: Yeah. Okay. There's probably two things I'd, I'd point to. Um if you step back from a, from a historical perspective, reality is the, the listed market globally has been is so much larger than the, than the, than the private market, that certainly the institutions are able to access, or superannuation funds, pension funds and the like, have been able to access. So many of us have been, been around for a while. We remember private equity used to be relatively tiny. I mean, literally small companies, and that was it. So I, I suppose more than, and there are lots of figures that I've seen bandied around, but One of the ones recently I saw was in the listed markets globally it's around about 70 trillion, uh, and in unlisted around about five. So the listed market, now even throwing in a grain of salt with that, the listed market dwarfs the uh, the unlisted market. So, and I would say globally, and we certainly see it here in Australia, I think there are there are lots of listed companies which really shouldn't be listed, and in fact probably better at better, better off being unlisted, or in private hands. So that's one. So the big distinction, and so I, I would see them naturally move together. That's one. That's one. Uh, one element. The other one is the reason we have a very large listed component was more by, uh, as much by opportunity and valuation and the quality, rather than being by design. The matter. So, uh, so um, ten years ago when we started to uh, to we started to internalise. Um, it was not so much internalisation that, that, that drove it. it was, this is post GFC, so it was more a case of we saw, uh, and that, that's actually the key point. It was post GFC, we saw lots of great assets which were listed being incredibly undervalued uh, versus their, their unlisted components. So uh, Transurban would be one. Uh, look, there were pl- there was plenty of people around at the time saying the listed infrastructure market would cease to exist. And uh, anyway, they got that one wrong, but that's uh, not the first time. So that we saw just great value in the, in the listed component and, and we still do in a way. And I think, so the last point I would say is, so much of that, of the valuation component comes into And I think listed um, listing and volatility, and volatility is the, the really, really big one because I'm sure Bill's got plenty of clients who have very, very different views on volatility. Some see it as a huge component of risk, Others, others like ourselves, we come from financial markets background. We're very comfortable with volatility, like our board is. Which more, that's actually far more important than um, than uh, than ours. But we're we're comfortable with the volatility, but but a lot a lot uh, a lot aren't, and hence they can move towards the unlisted space.
0: Uh, I mean, one, one of the narratives that's connected with this private for longer is that investors are missing out on these high growth companies, and maybe that's more of a retail conversation where. You know they can't access the private markets, but is that a concern for you in terms of listed markets and being able to, you know, actually missing out on, on, on that sort of exponential growth of of companies from a, from a startup position?
1: Uh, not necessarily. I mean, you, you're right. In terms of being uh, us being large institutions, we do get, uh, we do get access to deals um, in in the unlisted space that are difficult to access for a retail. But I would argue, in the listed sense, we, we do as well by, by, by virtue of size because uh, we're like a natural cornerstone um, cornerstone investor, so you can use that to your, uh, to your advantage. Um, it's more the uh, I, bottom line is for us when, as equity investors, we're agnostic if it's listed or unlisted. If it's a really good company where we think the earnings quality is great, sustainable earnings, sustainable dividends, uh, growing dividends. Um, if it's listed or unlisted, I mean they're, they're two different capital or governance structures, really. So we, we, we don't mind so much.
0: Marcus, you've had a career in in private equity. You were, worked for a big U.S. public plan for many years, and and sort of grew their private equity allocation from from domestic to global, and then now been head of global equity, global, global private equity, QIC for many years. Um, There was a McKinsey study that showed at the end of 2015 that 146 tech tech companies were valued as unicorns, and that was a significant time because it was double the year before. Um, That is now 393 private companies that are valued above a billion dollars. Is it fair to say that... These companies don't need listed markets anymore. They can raise capital elsewhere, and so they're not—they don't—they just don't need listed companies the way they used to. Is that sort of a changing dynamic that you're seeing in private equity?
2: I think that dynamic is changing, and I think that these big startups can stay private for longer. Um, certainly enabled by, in particular, this big SoftBank fund. Now, SoftBank itself, you know, through some of its investments, is having some growing pains, but you know, still. I think that capital is around, and you have seen companies like um, Airbnb, one of our portfolio companies, You know, normally would expect that to be public by now, but it can remain private. But you've got two things going on. So at one stage, you know, the founders and, and the venture capital managers will want to take money out. Um, but also you now see in some of our sort of C-suite and some of our portfolio companies, when we backed them, they sort of thought, "Oh, we're going to go public," and now they sort of go, "Well, it's additional scrutiny, it's additional cost." Then now, are these larger pools of capital that will enable me to stay private for longer? Probably, when you get to about sort of three to four billion dollar market cap, you can still sell on to another private equity uh, provider. But at some stage, you know, if you want a big money, you have to go to knock on Simon's door. <laughs>
0: So we haven't seen it so much in Australia, but certainly in, in other parts of the world, in, in the US in particular, pension plans, looking to private equity to try and reach their 7.5%, 8% um, return goals. And there's been a flood, if you like, of capital into private equity. How, what has that done to the asset class in terms of the opportunity set and, and, and how have you kind of got around that demand-supply dynamic?
2: well i think i mean when i was at vrs we were lucky because we were actually were fully funded as a db plan but there are a lot of plans in the us that are underfunded and with interest rates going down it's harder for them to to meet that funding target so private equity credit has actually probably taken more capital in than private equity in the last period i think that you know within private equity you know given that it's grown seven times AUM since 2002. There's a lot of choice, and they're areas that we like to play in. Uh, You do have to invest well, because there's a really big difference between a good private equity program and a bad private equity program. I think for us, we've found certainly very good investments. Uh, The big end of town, uh, your leveraged buyouts, they have had wins in their sales in terms of interest rates coming down, some public markets being open. Uh, so I think you know, it's now still smaller than public m- equity, but there is enough choice in order to be able to make good investments going forward.
0: Uh, I mean, huge flows, I- even though some sort of pointed out that private equity is still, you know, compared to, to the uh, listed market. But, you know, is that just a sort of weight of capital, $53 billion into venture capital so far this year? Is that I- indicating that private equity is a mature market?
2: It's maturing, but it continues to evolve. Uh, There is 1.3 trillion waiting to be invested. Most of that is in these mega buyout funds. I read that there's 50 trillion of cash sitting on the sidelines globally to go into to to be invested. So I think everywhere, and we're all saving more, there's just more money to be invested. So I think probably harder from our point of view in terms of how you're going to invest that well and deploy it.
0: So, Robert, you look after both private and public. Oh, yeah. Do you do you think that, and, and and you've got a sort of similar allocation at the moment to to private equity that Simon has around four and a half five percent, but a lot less enlisted. Um, do you think that investors have been going into private equity for the right reasons?
3: Um, well, the, I guess there's a proportion that are probably chasing returns and you know, given the environment of the last six or seven or eight years, 10, ten years, let's call it, um, there's a return chasing element. So that first point you um, you uh, indicated around why these companies are staying private for longer. In the venture capital space, um, you've seen growth equity investors raise larger and larger funds to follow on on their investments and keep these companies private because these things have done well and you've got these public pension plans, allocating more capital. What gives at some point too much capital chases these same things. Too much has been raised by groups like Insight or Technology for Crossover Ventures or Summit or Vista or one of those really big growth equity investors. And they'll just chase the prices up too far. And you know we're probably seeing elements of that out there at the moment. So one of the things that we've done is sort of really moderate our growth equity investments over the past 18 months or so, uh, as we've seen those types of funds being, being raised. So we don't tend to time a lot in private equity, it's just hard to do. Why not do it in public when you can actually get set at that good price as you can see in the market? Um, but what we do is sort of manage the way we have the sort of exposure that we have to certain things. So don't let one thing drive your whole portfolio. And one of the things that's done exceptionally well in the portfolio is the growth equity part. Um, and we've just been moderating that as part of our um, allocation process. And that's just sort of common sense, you know, don't let one thing result in mission risk. Um, The board, the IC saying, what the hell you done there? Um, And we're just managing that that way.
0: This is a question for both of you guys in the middle actually. So, you know, you're both responsible for equities and, and that sounds great. Yeah, you're agnostic to whether it's listed or unlisted. But how does that actually work in practice? Like, how t- t- tell me the decision-making process around that and how the team works and, and what does it look like?
3: I'm, I'm happy to, yeah. Um, so we... we
1: uh, you go first, Matt. Yeah,
3: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the private equity allocation <laughs> is, is set as an, uh, part of the SAA. So I don't have to go and take money from public equity and, say, pop it into... Um, um, Private equity. but how does that decision get made so we're talking around about 5% of the allocation now that's probably the minimum you might sensibly do to make it a viable program and not be too small okay right? now um, uh, how does that essay get, get driven well it's the alpha you think you can get out of it for all the the risks involved and the risks are not volatility right? the risk is you can't do this thing and earn an adequate return given the fees, the complexity and the illiquidity involved. And if you can work out how to do it, then allocate as much as you possibly can if you think you can manage those things. If you can't, don't bother doing it, it's it's, it's all right. It's okay not to do it. Um, so I, I, I'm always very c- conscious of people Looking at generic private equity, as Marcus pointed out, there's not a thing called generic private equity. You cannot buy that index. You've got to work out how to do it. And if you can work out how to do it, you think you can work out how to do it, I must say we're still in the seven years in, so we're not too sure we're quite there yet. Um, then I would argue, strategy guys, please give me as much as I possibly can get. Uh, but that probably taps out, given fees, complexity, and liquidity, at around about 5%. But there you go.
0: It's on.
1: Uh, so, I mean, my main area is listed, however, with the our, uh, the unlisted assets that we look at, it'll be uh, my team and myself usually doing the um, the industry analysis on the, on the due diligence in is the actual business a good business, is it the industry that's operating it? Usually because it's got listed competitors, so we'll know the industry, um, uh, usually a lot better than our uh, than our unlisted brethren, depending on the, the, the sector, so that's how that's how we overlap. Um, in that regard. In fact, we're looking at two right now. One's um, about to IPO, the other one is, is unlisted space. Uh, and so, my analysts are looking at um, at that. The, the difficulty on the unlisted side is uh, stuff that we all know. I mean, just the, the amount of due diligence that has to go in involved, the things like um, just with uh, the accounts, they're just often generalisation, not, not quite the same quality. Uh, the lawyers just um, <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> They're great people, you know. Like but, uh, <laughs> but the the due diligence and the, and then the governance structure, the the board, that there is just so much time taken in the um, everything around the capital structure, the governance structure, things like um, looking at um, and, and insurance, just everything that you, you wouldn't even think about with unlisted space. We've spent so much time. Uh, is spent on that, as opposed to actually really generally looking at the business. And that's a a real weakness, I think. Whereas on the listed side, a lot of that is, it's still, there's still risk there, but it is easier. And the reality is on the listed side, you can, um, there's more room for error. You make a mistake, you can usually sell the stock. You give it to your trusty value manager who's waiting down there. (laughs) 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 uh, (laughs) That's a joke. But the, 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 that's the reality. So it's just much harder. It's just much more difficult, and a lot more can um, can can go wrong. However, on the flip side, if you can get it, it's, uh, particularly if there's an element of exclusivity about it, um, it's uh, it, can, it can it can it can be very rewarding. Mm. Yeah, and yeah. you can have more. Ultimately, you have more control, more Drawing input. Point. You can influence the board. If something goes wrong, you can be there and uh, and help try and fix it. And with a an listed company. That's obviously much much harder when with the engagement etc
0: bill I might turn to you 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 obviously get to view this across many many clients what what's your kind of house view if you like in terms of portfolio construction across the equity risk premium generally do you do you look at it as in your agnostic as well or do you do you like to sort of have particular uh, asset class buckets that you like to fill or d- tell us about your approach
4: it's um, a good question so I mean, Theoretically, we, we do look at it holistically. It, you know, it's all equity risk, um, but in, in reality, I mean, most clients would would have an allocation to, um, you know, to public equities, some um, glo- global equities and Australian equities, and then an allocation to to private equity. Um, but the the lines between the two um, are, are definitely bl- blurring. And so, for example, um, there are uh, listed equity managers increasingly. Um, seeking it was part of their mandates to hold um, pre IPO companies as part of their uh, mandates so on the on, on the public equity side um, and then on the private equity side we're, we're seeing the emergence of um, uh, open-ended funds with sort of more of a um, um, buy and hold um, approach to private equity uh, rather than a typical kind of um, closed-end structure where they're looking to, to sell within seven years so the there's there's still clearly the the the, the distinction in terms of um, asset allocation, but there's evolution on both sides, um, which is which is um, breaking down some of those barriers.
0: Um, this is a question for anyone who wants to answer it. But Simon, you kind of mentioned governance, and you know, obviously, increasingly, on the listed side, I- you know, with the rise of ESG, you know, lots of asset owners are really paying attention to how they engage with companies and and their influence um, on them how do you all think that's going to play out on the private equity side and and what it, what is the possible influence and, and maybe Marcus start with you in terms of you know does that mean you need, need to take a bigger stake and sit on the board or you know like wh- how do you, how can you actually influence a private company in you know the sort of similar ways that now investors are, are influencing as stewards of capital on the listed side
2: Well, I think private equity historically has either controlled a company or had had very significant um, interest. And a lot of times the management team are actually looking to guidance from their private equity manager to help them grow. I think in the past, people just wanted higher returns. I think now they want higher returns, but the investments are done well. Uh, And certainly we've really geared up our ESG efforts Uh, and we can make a difference. So just to give you one example, so we own um, one of Australia's largest cattle businesses. Uh, We're really taking what I view as sort of Victorian business into the 21st century. Um, A lot of that work is around workplace health and safety. So dotted around our 13 properties were these um, towers that have the windmills on that drive the pumps. They're very dangerous. People fall off them. It's been in the papers, people fall off them and die. So we've actually, as part of our workplace and h- workplace health and safety work, we've actually been going through all the risks on the on the farms that we have. And there was a question, what do we do with these towers? The management came back and said, uh, we'll take them off over a five year period. Um, and as the board who really drove this exercise, we said, that's not what we want. We want them all taken off uh, within the next 18 months and replaced with um, solar power water bore. So it is both you know, safer, but also it's better for the environment. And that's because we're in that position we can drive that change. Mm.
0: What about you guys, I mean, how, how, how are you influencing the, your, your private allocations?
3: Um, similarly, uh, we use uh, many external um, private equity managers and there's been a number of instances, uh, particularly in Australia and New Zealand, where our ESG team's been involved with them, mm. having an influence on what we expect to see or how we expect to see these assets managed. Um, there's been one, one particular example in a, a New Zealand aged care home where we got quite heavily involved and that's the sort of influence you can have when you're close to a, a general partner, a GP, um, and you'd expect them to be able to do that in, in, in the future, it's actually in private land you have a bigger influence because the general partner, the, the investor uh, can, can have a, a real impact. One, one other way, other ways to think about it is um, jurisdictionally. So. In Australia, the UK, US, OK, is well understood governance arrangements around listed equities. In other parts of the world, that's probably not quite at that same standard, and it is probably, you have a bigger impact as a private equity investor there, um, relative to public, than you do in places like, like Australia. Engagement is just harder in those jurisdictions. Um, so, uh, particularly in emerging markets, actually controlling things and Working with a GP who runs things and drives things is actually uh, a better governance or, um, arrangement given the, the differences in the, um, in the waitlisted um stocks and companies tend to be running those in, in those places.
2: So why don't you do more in private equity then? If that's a better governance model?
3: Uh, because it's not the only thing that drives you. So complexity, fees, liquidity. So and it goes back to that 5%. Yeah, it goes yeah. things. That's <laughs> where you get tapped out. Now, you know, if, if the property managers have dropped their fees in half, we could double their allocation. There you go.
0: Simon, <laughs> so, mean, when you, you, you talked about the sort of, you know, onerous task of, of assessing those companies, I, is that something that, that puts you off actually allocating I mean, is that something that you, it's not worth the, the reward? Or, you know, how do you assess that? Uh,
1: no, it's, it's just... It is a much, much harder, more onerous just from the, the due diligence perspective, um, and does it actually put us off if there is um, if there is a listed comparable company of same quality? Done. Mm. Right. That's it, so. Um, un- it, the valuation though comes into play. So at the moment though we're getting we're getting an issue where that the unlisted back in the day you'd be the listed company would be trading a high valuation, the unlisted now it's gone the other way around. To a degree, not a generalisation, but it, I think that, that's happening. Uh, certainly happening, for example, in the infrastructure space. We see, um, and it, look, that waxes and wanes. Happens in property all the time, all the time. It, um, in fact, that property is a really good asset class to look at, listed versus unlisted, and we've all and the the, um, the asset owners here have plenty of both usually, and and the way they swing around um, happens a lot. But the the if you go back to the the governance um, structure, I think that the from what we see. Um, the governance tends to be from on the unlisted space. My, our own view would be, generally speaking, nowhere near as good as the, the listed equivalent. Um, however, you do have an ability to make more material impact for the good. So um, with our, a lot of our unlisted um, assets, for example, where they've struggled with, as Marcus said, on uh, workplace health and safety, uh, we have introduced them to companies that we know where, where we... May or may not have shareholding, <laughs> but we know that they may be really good in a in a certain area in terms of like workplace work health and safety, and do an introduction to the to the unlisted company and helps them uh, helps them re- and, and they because they, they don't know that area. So companies also where they're big family company orientation, they're generally speaking their their governance um, is not as good. So you think about diversity. Um, diversity for them is allowing someone who's not a family member <coughs> on board like it's it, it, it's um, it's it's very very different so in many respects these companies actually would be if their private um private equity introduction would actually be m- m- a good segue for them to um often to to grow i'm generalizing obviously but it, it's uh it's um yeah the, the esg factor and robert's exactly right jurisdictionally that's we we see that even in our own market from the small cap Market to the to go into the hundred liters. I mean, it's a real step change to the ESG. Mm.
0: We, we might now just uh, turn to a couple of poll questions, actually, to sort of measure the 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 room. So, um, get out your Slido and we'll just bring up those questions. Yeah. <coughs> <Excuse me. coughs> um, okay. Thank you. <laughs> Questions there. Let's talk amongst yourselves for a minute.
1: (laughs) 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 All
0: right. While we're waiting for the question, the the other stuff that even though that was the perfect time for the questions, but um, we'll come back to them. (laughs) Um, I want to talk a little bit about this sort of actual and realised volatility between listed and unlisted. Does anyone want to comment on that? I think, Simon, you might have mentioned it earlier. Um, how should investors really think about that?
1: Uh, look, I'm probably the, the worst person to speak to <laughs> I, on that because I just think it's total furphy that unlisted and listed are not correlated. Uh, give it six months and give it give a big downturn, the correlation is 100%. So. Uh, the most annoying thing is um, being a little bit flippant. It's that time of the day. So, the uh, worst, what is, what is, um, most frustrating thing is, so with listed and unlisted property, you have uh, LPTs taking a bath just before December thirty-one, and of course, with the unlisted property guys, everything goes up ten percent every year, as we know. <laughs> so, and so you get that, you get that uh, that performance dispersion, and all the funds trumpet going. How good are we? And, and, and then only a few months later, banks all. Um, Obviously, I'm joking, but it, that that uh, it and it works. It works both ways, so uh, it can be frustrating at times. But, but, but culturally, though, in all seriousness, it does vary from um, at at board level, at the the highest level. as we know, culture culture comes from the top. And there are and plenty of funds around having been at a mainstream fund manager and having many many clients where they were just, some were much more relaxed about volatility than than others. Others just Will do anything to avoid volatility. They'll do anything to avoid their their call centre light lighting up like a Christmas tree. Uh, and it's um, yeah, so it, it, it's more in the eye of the beholder, mm. client by client. I mean, Bill would know a lot more than um, than I would. Um, yeah, Bill, do you yeah. want to comment on that? So, sure, well, I mean,
4: it's really a it's a it's a case of mindset, really. I mean, it's inevitable that that um, most investors, most humans, react negatively to um, volatility. Obviously, particularly on the downside, but. It does open up a, an opportunity as i think you alluded to to um take advantage of that opportunity so and to invest in in for example into um public markets with more of a private equity mindset so for example you, you mentioned examples when the listed market got very cheap after the two 2008-09 um, crisis and that um, provide the opportunity to take privates and uh and the like it's also the sort of idea sitting behind some of these um open-ended um, private equity vehicles where they can uh, again um, buy a company that is cheap um, um, f- often from the listed markets and and hold it for a long long period so it's just a question of how you know how you approach that volatility if you if, you, if it's painful for you and the, the, you know there's a range of clients who you know m- might um, be important what their balance sheet is at 30 June or, or the like but if you can genuinely take a a longer term approach um, in both public and private equity markets, it'll help you.
0: All right, great. We might go to those poll questions now. I think the <coughs> audience has uh, already uh, started answering it, but so uh, the question <laughs> is, do you hold private equity? <coughs> so, kind of two thirds of the room, and <coughs> uh, we'll just move to the next one. Please. Is governance easier in public or private markets? (laughs) Who said private? (laughs) I'd love to to know why. (laughs) Is anyone game to say? I don't usually call on people. Yes? Use the microphone if you don't mind.
3: I'm kind of, I was a little bit sort of divided one way or the other. I think, you know, obviously the ESG in public markets is, is well developed. You have access to the board and so on, but in private markets you can be on the board, you know, so you can have direct influence. but. You know, I think about private equity as hand-to-hand combat. You know, getting getting change and you know enacting change at, at the board is, is hard work, but you can actually be at the table and get involved.
0: So it may may not be maybe easier isn't the right word, but it's more effective. effective. Perhaps. Mm-hmm. Do you want to comment as well?
4: Look, it's really the same uh, answer as Greg. I took it from a control perspective, and in, in traditional private equity, you have control <coughs> and you can. So if they don't bring about the ESG change you think is appropriate, then you find someone else to do it. So it's sort of easy to really bring real change.
0: Yeah, great. Thank you. And one last poll question, kind of related, ability to influence ESG in public or private markets, which is greater? question is a little bit. Di- the answer is a little bit mm. difficult. So yes or no? Right? Yes or no question? <laughs> Let's say yes is public and no is private. Oh yeah.
4: <laughs> <laughs> this is volatility. So kind of split.
0: <laughs> All right. Thank you, everyone. Sorry about the error in that in that uh, answering. So in the audience today, we've also got James Posnett who I'm going to call on now, who's a senior manager of the listings business, um, business development at the ASX, and you know, want to get your comments, James, oh, over in the far corner, um, hi. hi, table ten. Um, if you don't mind, just to comment on some of the things we've talked about at the beginning of this conversation in terms of IPOs, and you know, I talked a lot about the US market, but but what are you seeing here, and what can you tell investors about the health of um, of the listings in in the local market? Should be
5: on if the red lights on. It should work. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Look, great, uh, great panel. Um, I, I agree with those points. And, and, and to Simon's point, um, I think from our perspective, you know, we do see private equity serves a very small part of, uh, of the market. You know, compared to public markets, it's you know sort of five percent globally and one point five percent in Australia so in terms of the size. And, and you know, some other observations are, you know, as a percentage of GDP. Um, you know, market cap globally has increased over the last uh, 10 years uh, on a global basis. It has increased, so it's gone from sort of 60% to about 90% of GDP over the last 10 years globally. And Australia's taken a really interesting uh, sort of trend uh, in, in the sense that it's sort of following the global average, uh, whereas we've seen, you know, some of the, the developed markets, that, that measure has decreased over that time frame, uh, and the Asian uh, markets have increased, as as has on that basis the U.S. market, but that's obviously driven by the FANGs and, and that sort of expansion value uh, that they've they've contributed to that. Um, you know, and also in terms of number of listings, in Australia we've seen an increase of about 65% and the U.S. has seen a drop mm-hmm. off of 50%. So, you know, that's of, often driven by, you know, the fact that we get a lot of listings, but there are smaller and smaller mid-cap listings, here, Um, which my old nicey colleagues actually are slightly envious of, of because um, they can't really list anything under a billion-dollar market cap. And and look, we can have a debate on where's the right level, but there's certainly some solid mid-caps that have come to market in Australia that have been very um, successful. And uh, we've had 100 tech listings in the last five years, and and 100 cross-border listings over the last five years. And and on balance, we see that as being a positive uh, for for our equity market overall. And it's balanced as well between, you know, arguably a little bit more onerous um, regulation and and requirement uh, on the regulatory side in the US markets versus Australia. We feel like, you know, it is a main board here, but we have quite a balanced regulatory framework uh, in our view. So um, so it's certainly, uh, you know, front of mind for us Obviously, private versus public. Um, I, I guess the final point is that, you know, is complementary. You know, so we've seen some really interesting VC and PE backed IPOs recently, uh, like Prosper, for example, which was an Airtree and peg investment. Um, you know, and, and actually, as we see uh, VC mature in this country, we, we, we expect to see more of those kind of transactions, which is, I, I think, that for the, for the
0: All right, great. Thanks, James. Now, I'm going to turn over to you guys.